0: 14. The Mistreatment of Indians One of the first things I saw on arriving at the Indian reservation was the persistent abuse of the Indians at the nearby mining town, twelve miles away. Both when it was legal or illegal, Indians went there to buy whiskey. The Indians are one of several racial groups with a great susceptibility to alcoholism. In most cases, it did not take much liquor to make them thoroughly drunk. In that condition, they were easily robbed of their money. Indian girls and women were also raped, being in no state to resist or even to know what was happening. More than a few told me of their ugly experiences. I was, in fact, called to testify before a grand jury and later at a trial. Some white men involved in the construction of a new school building on the reservation also testified before the grand jury. At the trial, those men failed to appear. A foreman denied any knowledge of the matter. There had been many payoffs, I was told, to ensure acquittal. The jury of twelve white men, quote, good and true, unquote, who could truthfully claim a lack of evidence, naturally returned a, quote, not guilty, unquote, verdict. Even now it angers me to recall such incidents. The exploitation of Indians in areas adjacent to the reservations is a very real and grim fact. At the same time, an honest accounting must record the sins on both sides. Some Indians were lawless. They stole from shopkeepers whose backs were turned. I recall a white man, in the mining camp on business, proudly showing off a new car, one of the very first ones available after the end of World War II. I told him to lock his car, and he laughed at my Christian insistence on the depravity of fallen man. It was a very cold night, and while the car owner was in the bar, a very drunk and sick Indian crawled into the car and vomited all over the driver's seat. What followed is revealing of human nature. The Indian, having slept for a time, got out of the car and ran off in the dark, unidentified. I had just finished a pastoral visit nearby, and arrived on the scene as the owner was profanely viewing his polluted new car. The sight of me, and the fact that my warning had been a sensible one, only enraged him further. Given his profanities, you would have thought I was the guilty person. Such is human nature. Man is a fallen creature, whatever his race or color. Without the grace of God, he is evil, and even dangerous. In time, I came to realize that the Indians were victimized because their way of life made them victims. They could see that the Christian Indians prospered and were not victimized, but they preferred to follow their own fallen ways and to complain about exploitation. To illustrate, one of the Indian elders of our church, Guy Manning, was a Shoshone. He was part white and perhaps part Chinese, blonde and blue-eyed, a remarkable Christian, and a man with a good sense of humor. Besides his cattle, he had an apple orchard and kept bees and sold honey. He also had a family garden, the war took his sons into various branches of the service, and he had his cattle and hay meadows and those of his sons to care for. He was arthritic and could not mount a horse without help. When he irrigated the hayfields, a young granddaughter accompanied him to run for help in case he stumbled and fell because he could not get up without help. One Sunday afternoon, he took the family for a picnic at Lamb's Creek Reservoir. After eating, he stretched out to nap, his hat over his eyes, while the children fished, Suddenly, he was awakened by his granddaughter screaming, Grandpa, Grandpa, there's a rattlesnake on you! He looked under the brim of his hat to see a very large rattler crawling over him. Instantly and instinctively, he jumped up and landed some feet away. As he flew through the air, the rattler turned and struck at him, its fangs clinging to Guy's coat for a moment before it fell off. Guy stood there in shock, amazed at his prodigious leap. Quote, Better than I ever did when I was young, unquote, he told me he decided that if a scare could produce that much energy, he could muster it for his daily work. And he did. He went back to his old vigor and activities. Now, Guy Manning was one of the Indians periodically voted onto the tribal council, made council chairman, and relied on, with other Christians, to clean up the reservation. Fairly soon, drunkenness would be abated, order restored, and the Indian court made to function ably. But sinners, whites or Indians, for all of their complaining, can only stand law and order for so long. As a result, non-Christians would be voted back onto the council, the situation would deteriorate until it became intolerable, and then the Christians would again be voted in, albeit briefly. Not only was Guy never in trouble or exploited, but he was a better manager of his affairs than were often well-paid white officials of the Indian service, who were supplied with residences and vehicles. White officials would try to, quote, protect, unquote, the Indians by controlling their cattle receipts. I recall a top agency official pressuring Gee to allow him to keep his cattle check and pay the Mannings' bills. Gee refused, but the official still refused to turn over the check. Finally, Gee said, plainly and bluntly, I know you. Every weekend you spend your time at the Mountain City Hotel Bar getting drunk. Why should I turn over my affairs to a man like you? The official never forgave him. In another instance, Guy exposed the misuse of tribal and other funds by a superintendent, a fanatical Catholic who was determined to save the Indians from the Protestant mission with misappropriated funds. Guy's documented charges hit the media from coast to coast. An Indian service investigation whitewashed the superintendent, but transferred him, knowing his guilt and the tribe's anger. Guy Manning was not one to be victimized, because he was a free man in Christ. To cite one more example, a girl, Josephine Roa, half Shoshone and half Hispanic, was highly intelligent, thoroughly godly, and a beautiful person. She was one of three sisters, all Christians. Josephine was a grace-filled woman. In any community or group, she would have stood out, as did Leah Manning and others in our church. It was a joy to know Josephine. She could always be counted on to be helpful. She studied at the Cook Christian Training School in Phoenix, and she married Inez Peirce, Carl's Dixon, who became a pastor. They moved to Oklahoma, where Carl served in ministry. I can only think of Josephine with respect and affection. While we live in the world, and the best of us experience evil things, a persistent pattern of exploitation implies moral failure. The question is not one of racial inferiority. That is a humanistic myth. Christian faith and morality are necessary to progress against sin and exploitation. We are told in 1 John 5-4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I reminded Indian groups that when missionaries from the Near East and the Mediterranean world first moved into Northern and Western Europe, they despaired at times that the barbarians they met could ever be made into a godly and law-abiding people. In Christ, however, in time they became the bulwark of Western and Christian culture. Even as now, without Christ, they are returning to barbarism.